0: Now, our Bible reading this morning is taken from the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk chapter 3, and we're only going to read the first six verses. Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 1 through to 6. found the place, the words will also come up on the screen for those who are watching online, and we appreciate our audience again today. Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 1, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet upon Shigenoth, O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years make known, in wrath remember mercy. God came from Timan, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. And his brightness was as the light. He had horns coming out of his hand. And there was the hiding of his power. Before him went the pestilence. And burning coals went forth at his feet. He stood and measured the earth. He beheld and drove asunder the nations. And the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills did by. His ways are everlasting. Amen. We know the Lord will stamp with his own approval and blessing. This reading of the Holy Scriptures. My text this morning is taken from Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. And I've entitled this message becoming passionate about real revival. Now, Habakkuk remember means a wrestler with God. Habakkuk remember is not preaching a series of messages to Judah, Egypt, or Syria. Habakkuk is addressing the Lord. He is revealing to the Lord by way of a dialogue about his inner struggles. He's confessing to the Lord the thoughts that are on his mind. We know nothing of his background. We know nothing of his call to preach. But what we do know is this. He's a man of God. He's a man of prayer. He's a man who loves his country and the cause of God in that country. And yet here he is, struggling spiritually. I want you to think of him praying. Overall, he's praying for one theme in his mind and that is revival and as he wrestles with the Lord he, he is conscious that the Lord seems to be doesn't seem to be answering his prayers so he's asking really in his mind are you listening Lord and then he wrestles with a second question that, that's perplexing him another conundrum and it's this the Lord's inactivity and in dealing with sin in the land of Judah and dealing with a backslidden cold people Lord, why aren't you doing something? Why are you inactive, Lord? How can you allow sin and wickedness to continue without dealing with it? Lord, are you really there? And then he faces a third struggle. When the Lord does answer him, he is stunned to discover that the Lord is going to use the Babylonians to punish Judah. A, a, a people more wicked and evil than the Judeans ever were, a, a bunch of godless pagans. And he's thinking, Lord, but that can't be right. Lord, are you sure you're not making a mistake? Lord, I'm puzzled. Lord, I'm perplexed. So what does he do? He rehearses what he knows about the Lord. Chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. i, I not read it out to you. You can look at the words in the book. Then Habakkuk resolves to wait upon the Lord in his tower. He keeps praying on for an answer. And he's thinking this thought How am I to live in this ungodly world? And the Lord gives the answer Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4. Behold, his soul which is upright, behold, his soul which is lifted up, is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. And he also thinks then, what about the ungodly, the the unjust pagan called the Babylonians? And here's God's answer. There's a payday someday. And we preach that sermon in Habakkuk chapter 2 verses 5 through to 20. Now look with me at chapter 3 verse 1. Remember Habakkuk is a burden, broken-hearted prophet. He has burdened and broken for the explosion of iniquity, immorality, and idolatry that has seemed to flourish and flood the political, social, moral, religious life of Judah. And what's he praying for? Well, he's praying for revival. I want you to see that. Listen to the words. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet upon Shigunoth. O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known in wrath. Remember mercy. He is praying with a heartfelt, passionate plea for a real, true, genuine revival. Now, the subject of true, genuine revival has been in my heart and mind, as I've told you, for the past few months. And this morning, I want to commence a very short series of messages on this most important subject. And I want to do it in the context of keeping with Habakkuk the prophet. So I'm going to ask you a question to all who are listening online and to you who are here this morning: What is the Church of Jesus Christ's greatest need more than anything else in the 21st century? What do we need? Well, you might think, well, we need more people, and that's certainly true. We need more money. Well, that's true as well because we have debts that we need to pay. We need better organisation. Well, I, I would agree with that. There's many areas in which we feel, and I am to the forefront. We need better programmes. We need new leadership. I'm going to set all those things to aside, and I'm going to say the answer to that is no. We need something deeper. And this is what we need. This is the greatest need for carried off FPC. We need the Lord to come and revive his work. Isn't that what Habakkuk was saying? Listen to the words. Think of them now. O oh Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O oh Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years make known In wrath remember mercy. You see, the main thought in Habakkuk's mind... From the very first time we're introduced to him as he opened his mouth as a broken-hearted, burdened prophet is this, for the Lord to come and revive his work. He's thinking, is there any hope for Judah? Is there any hope for the work of God? And the answer is yes. It's in one word. Revival. So that's what we're going to think about this morning. I want you to think, first of all, of the sigh for revival. Look at verse 2. You've got the words, O Lord. And then he says again in verse 2, O Lord. So it's mentioned twice. There's the sigh for revival. The O is wrenched out of his heart. It comes from his innermost being. He has a deep, inner, intensive concern for the well-being of the work of God. What's he saying? Oh Lord, revive thy work. You see, he recognizes there is such a thing as the work of God. And he's thinking, of course, of ancient Israel. He's thinking especially of the two tribes that make up the southern kingdom, namely Judah and Benjamin. He he, he knows that the work of God is wide enough to include the northern kingdom, the the ten kingdoms, and, and the ancient people of God in Judah and in Israel equally applies to to the Israel of God today, the the church of the Old Testament and the church of the New Testament, one church, one people. And, And here's Habakkuk. From the time that we're introduced to him, he's greatly burdened and greatly troubled for what? The work of God. And I asked this morning, are you and I greatly burdened and greatly troubled for the work of God? You see, Habakkuk knows that all is not well. He knows there's something wrong in the life of the country, in the life of the church, and in the life of the professing Christians in that day. Let me illustrate. I want you to think of two little boys, P5 and P6. One's aged 8 and the other's aged 10, and they're always getting into trouble. mischief. Troublemakers some parents would call them and if there's any trouble going on at school or any trouble going on in the neighborhood or any trouble going on in the life of the church then the parents were always talking about these two boys who did it well it's these two boys the parents were at wit's end they were saying to other people what can we do you know, we've beat them and we've done everything and, and, and they're still getting up the mischief and doing things that are wrong. So, so they asked the minister to help. Well, well he was at the school uh, doing a, 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 an RE class. It was the end of the day and uh, one of the boys was absent and the, the um, youngest boy, he was brought into the headmaster's office. And uh, the minister was there and the teacher was there and they, 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 they started to talk to the boy. And of course the wee fella, he was that overcome, Uh, he he was silent and it wasn't saying anything and the minister started asking him questions and of course he he didn't utter a word. And the the minister, he got a bit uh, stern with him and he he said, "Now, now come on, I want you to tell me, where's God in all this? And of course the wee boy didn't answer, so the minister, he raised his voice a bit more, now come on, tell me, where's God in all this? The boy sat down, didn't answer, looked at the minister. And then, of course, the minister, he got a, a bit more uh, fierce in his uh, putting uh, forth what he was saying to the wee fella. And, and he banged the desk and he says, Where's God? And the wee fella jumped up, ran out through the door and home and into his bedroom as quickly as he could. The bigger brother, he came up. What's wrong with you? And he says... God's missing and they're blaming us. God's missing and they're blaming us. I I want to tell you there's a thought there. Because God is missing in the life of the country. And God is missing in the life of the church. And God is missing in the life of many professing Christians. Are we, and I put myself in the front of the line here, are we not living in a state of coldness? in a state of spiritual declension, are we not just guilty of spiritually existing with a name that we're Christians? You, you, you think of the state and sins of the country. Habakkuk's day, society was facing massive problems politically, socially, morally. Many had turned to idolatry. Many had turned to immorality. Many were were guilty of loose living. Remember these five sins that we've mentioned in chapter 2? The sins of selfishness and theft, the sins of covetousness, the sins of bloodletting. There was violence in the streets of the city, so much so that the law was slacked. Law and order seemed to have broken down. Um, The land was so corrupted that from the top down, even the judges, they were bribed and did what was right in their own eyes. The law wasn't being properly implemented. Think of the sin of drunkenness. Think of the sin of godlessness. What were they doing? They just had let God out. False religion was flourishing, wicked, ungodly men were in control. And they were taking no notice of God or the things of God. They were dishonest men, immoral men, ungodly men. And they, the laws that they passed were contrary to the law of God and contrary to common sense. But they were doing what was right in their own eyes. See a parallel in our day? Can you see a parallel, folks, in the United Kingdom? Think of the political life of the United Kingdom. Think of the social life in the United Kingdom, the moral life in the United Kingdom. Think of the religious life in the United Kingdom. What is wrong? Someone wrote a tract one time. What is wrong with Britain? And here's what's wrong. God has been left out. God is missing from the top down. They go through the mechanics and the mechanisms of pretending to worship him. But their heart is not right. There's bloodletting in the land, covetousness, theft, Fraud, drunkenness, ungodliness And we can add the rise of atheism The spirit of hedonism Where where people uh, follow the God of pleasure Then we have the introduction of same-sex marriage Which is not marriage Then we've got this rise of transgenderism Where Jim wants to be Jane Jane wants to be Jim. Then we've got abortion. The worst abortion laws enforced in Northern Ireland now in the whole of the Western world. We've got the problem of euthanasia. They're pushing for that. Then we have government interference in so many areas, including even the issue of freedom of speech. The right to say what we believe the Bible says. Do you know there's a hate bill going through the Scottish Parliament at this time? And if it's passed, then the atheists and many others beside want to use that as an attempt to go to court and get the Bible banned because of what the Bible teaches about morality. And add into the mix the rise of terrorism, whether it's from Islam or dissident republicans with their militant agenda to uh, forward the reunification of Ireland. You've got to think of the state and sins of our country. And what's, what's at the heart of it? God is missing. And are we concerned? Are we troubled? Think of the state and sins of the church. I want you to think of Habakkuk's day. People were on the verge of captivity the Babylonians were coming. Why? One word. Here's the answer. Sins. There were sin in the lives of God's people. What sin? Chiefly, God is left out. And Habakkuk knows that God is a holy God who hates sin and will punish sin. Do you think of the state and sins of the church of Jesus Christ today? Is there not a denying of the inspiration, the inerrancy, the accuracy, the centrality, the historicity, and the sufficiency of the Word of God? Now, let me illustrate. Take Genesis chapters 1 to 3. There are preachers today, theologians, bishops, evangelists, who tell us that those first three chapters are not literal. In other words, they're not true history. That Adam and Eve were not really our first parents. I'm not talking about down and out apostates. I'm not talking about heretics this morning. I'm talking about professing evangelicals in the church of Jesus Christ. And this is what they say. There was no first Adam. And if there's no first Adam, I want to tell you it's nonsense then to talk of a second Adam. Or the the last Adam. Adam. You see, once you remove the historicity of Genesis 1 to 3, you're attacking the very foundations of biblical truth. You're attacking the very foundation of the gospel. And the whole edifice then begins to crack and crumble. You see, without the historicity, the literalness of Genesis 1 to 3, You can't explain the entrance of sin. You can't explain death. You you certainly can't explain marriage and where it come from. And you certainly can't explain redemption. The first gospel promise is in Genesis 3 and 15. And once you remove the Bible and remove it from the anchor of inspiration and errancy and accuracy and centrality and historicity and sufficiency, then you have lost... Something that's great. Is it any wonder we've lapsed into great theological problems taught in university and school? Science, we're told today, trumps the scriptures. See, once you remove the book, that this book, the Holy Bible, once you remove that from the life of the church, then, as Queen Elizabeth or Queen Victoria said, the secret of England's greatness is what? The open Bible. And do you know why I fear we have Bibles galore? We're fixing up the porta cabin for the minister's study, the back of the church here. And I've got a whole shelf full of Bibles. I was thinking about this from Thursday. We could have a multiplicity of Bibles, but our Bibles are not read and studied and meditated upon as they ought. And yet the Bible is what? It's been given by inspiration of God, it's it's the very breath of God. God has given us His Word. Do we not live in a day when there's a shallow understanding of who God is? What is God? What's He like? What has he done? The text that we we chose in the porch as you come into church is Be still and know that I am God. That was a text that we brought from the old schoolhouse. Why? Because the greatest knowledge in the world, young people, is the knowledge of God. I don't care what you know. Not even if you have a PhD or five of them. If you don't know God, you really know nothing. And yet we've forgotten. Despite the multiplicity of Bibles, we've forgotten who God is, his person, his perfections, his power. What do we really know of the holiness of God, the sovereignty of God, the goodness of God, the wrath of God, the love of God? The truth is, folks, and I, I put myself to the first of the line, I don't know God as I ought. We have a little knowledge and it's impacting upon our life and witness is there not also a poor understanding of the gospel today what is the gospel Oh, well, if we ask many of these professing evangelicals if we were to bring them into the pulpit and asked them do you believe in the one living and true God who's revealed himself in the holy scriptures and could you tell me what is the one way to approach that true and living God they couldn't answer the children here could answer John 14 verse 6 Jesus said I am the way the truth the life no man comes unto the father but by me does the scripture not say in first Timothy 2 and 5 for there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus a few weeks ago we preached or attempted to on the great doctrine of justification by faith alone Habakkuk the prophet was saying, Lord, how do I live in this ungodly age? And the Lord gave him the answer, the just shall live by his faith. But did you know that these professing evangelicals have a new perspective on even the Apostle Paul's doctrine of justification by faith alone? You know what they're basically saying? I'll tell you. They're saying, We know better than Martin Luther. He was wrong. We know better than John Calvin. He was wrong. We know better than John Knox because not only do they speak of a forensic justification, but they speak of a future justification. Oh, this sounds very nice, doesn't it? Very polished. What is it? It rests on the life of a believer. In other words, how or she lives her life depends on a future justification at the end of their days. I want to tell you what that is. That's justification by works. That's essentially what it is. It, it's the old theory of Roman Catholicism that we're justified by works dressed up in evangelical language. That's the new prospectus. You see, we have a poor understanding of the gospel. And I want to tell you something. This church, this denomination has lost a great stalwart in the late Dr. Alan Kearns, Because Dr. Cairns taught us through his writing. And through his preaching. That he had a good understanding of the gospel. And he taught us about the doctrine of total depravity. As well as the doctrine of justification by faith. These new evangelicals talk about a general depravity. Mankind is basically good. But not a total Sinner in his will, and in his understanding, and in his emotions. They've even sought to corrupt the doctrine of the new birth. We live in a day, folks, when we have lost the presence and power of God. We're we're living in barren times. The tide is out, spiritually speaking, in Northern Ireland. And then people are asking, well, well, why is there not so many conversions today? We have gospel missions. As good a preaching as what you ever had in the days of the late Dr. Paisley and others. But why so few conversions today? Could the answer not be? Is the answer not? The Lord has withdrawn himself. The Lord is withholding his presence. The Lord is withholding his power. You see... There has to be an acknowledgement. Not only of the state and sins of the country. And we can do that. But I want to tell you, we also have to make the sad admission of the state and sins of the church. And we need a rediscovery of who God is. And the word of God. And the gospel of God. Let me tell you something else. I want you to think of the state and sins of the Christian. I've asked myself this week, what is wrong with us today? Do you know why I can sum it up? I say this with shame. Three words. We have lost our commitment. We've lost our commitment to Jesus Christ and his cause and his church. I, I remember visiting the late Dr. Paisley shortly after that he stood down from the martyr's memorial. Something that affected me and broke my heart. I loved Dr. Paisley and the Lord and I respected him greatly. Didn't agree with every decision, mind you, but I, I loved him in the Lord. He was God's man. I remember sitting with him in his office or study at Cypress Avenue, and we began talking about the things of God, and I asked him, what's wrong with us today, Dr. Paisley? And he said this, we have lost our commitment. He went on to explain that we're so busy backstabbing each other, that we're so full of self and so full of pride, so full of our own interests, we put ourselves first and the things of God are no longer central. Our homes are first, our lives are first, our needs are first. And we've set our affections not on things above, things of the earth. And doesn't that lost our commitment, pan out to the commitment to the church itself? Think about Seventh day attendance. And I'm not speaking about those who are shielding or isolating today. Isn't it a sad day when we've lost the sense of prioritizing the Sabbath? Doesn't the book say, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? Where's the commitment to Christian service? Up until the 1980s, young men and women were volunteering and offering themselves to go into full-time service, the life of the church, missionary work. The idea was, like Isaiah here, my Lord send me. But there doesn't seem to be the same passion today. Doesn't be the same commitment. Why? Many reasons. Do you know I say this? Children of the manse growing up, missionary children growing up, oftentimes have seen how their parents have been treated and affected and even forgotten. In the work of God And it's greatly impacted upon them Because they had this sense It's not right It's not right And it's impacted on their hearts And their minds And their decisions And their lives We have to confess There's a spirit of coldness A spirit of carelessness There's a, there's a comfortable Aneas has come amongst us And it's allowed worldliness to rise it's caused a, a, a shallowness of the things of God, and we've forgotten what matters most. What did the Lord Jesus say Matthew 6 and 33? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. I could add into the mix, Christian liberty has been used by many professing evangelicals to become a license to sin. So now they can sit in the pub and get drunk. Now they can go to the disco and the dance floor. Now now they can go to the theater and wherever they want without batting an island and without thinking, could this be right in the sight of God? Is there not also a big spirit of bitterness and backbiting among God's people? Is there not a party spirit, a jealousy today, a suspicion of motives in the hearts and minds of many? Pride has come in. I deserve better. I'm better than him or better than her. And of course, the way we treat people is important. People can be hurt by ministers and by elders. And they have been. You see, there's a lot of individualism today. The unity of the spirit has been lost. We've lost sense of being part of the body of Christ. And it's hurt the church. And what do we need, folks? Well, I've heard the calls. Oh, we need another John Knox. We need another Calvin. We need another Luther. We need another Dr. Paisley raised up. We need a new celebrity preacher. A new Calvinism. A new program of events would be helpful. What about a new entertainment service for the church? Should the church not be a profit-making organization? Should we not run the church like a business? Do we not need a public relations office to deal with people? I've heard all these things. And the answer is, that's not what we need. Do you know what we need? And I said this in the introduction. Our greatest need is a mighty outpouring of the Spirit of God. There's an urgent need for revival. Revival. The late Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in 1970 was asked the question, is there any hope for the Western world? And this is what he said. I'll answer it in one word. Revival. That is the need of the hour. And I want to ask, and I've spent now 20 minutes just in one point and I've deliberately labored it. Do you sigh for revival? May the Lord show us the state of the sins of the country. The state and sins of the church. The state and sins of our own hearts and lives. And may the Lord make us sigh. Create soul thirst for revival. Now that's just the first point. The next point shall be shorter. I want you to think also of the subject of revival. Think of this word revive. Oh, Lord, revive thy work. What did Habakkuk mean? He used the word revive. What did he mean? We need to define our terms. We need a proper understanding of the subject. And why do I emphasize that? Because in church history, there's different ideas as to the meaning of the word revive. You see, some people believe that revival is hosting a revival service. I'm going to put a notice out in a few weeks' time and say, let's have a revival service. Well, that's what Charles Finney did in New York. A revival can be organized and planned by men. It can be scheduled in and we can have a series of evangelistic services. Now there's nothing wrong with having special evangelistic services, but we're not going to call them revival services because that would obscure the meaning, the true meaning of the word. Others believe that revival is linked to the restoration of spiritual gifts to the church. So way back in the 1800s, 40s and 50s, there was the emphasis then on the rediscovery of the gifts of Acts 2, especially the gift of tongues and the gift of healing. And you think of the apostolic church and they believe in four key pillars, prophet, priest and king and healer. And I have nothing wrong with that, but I want to say the apostolic church has been around for well over a hundred years and more. And yet has those apostolic churches with the restoration of gifts that they claim or exercised among them has it brought about revival in their church in their community has it brought revival to their country see some people link revival and the outpouring of the spirit with the charismatic movement or the ecumenical movement and there's even now a new movement that's widespread in Latin America and, and, and in Africa and it's connected to what they call restoration or transformation revival. And it has to do with recognizing that we're in a spiritual war and we need to transfer, transform the land out of that spiritual war and, and win for Christ. But I want to tell you, none of those things have any bearing on the meaning that Habakkuk had in his mind. He's praying for revival. What did he mean? He used the word revive to mean to live, to quicken, to, to restore, a, 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 a recovery of that which is alive. You think of a fire, and I have it in my hearth, and it's burning very low, but there's still a few puffs of smoke there. There's still a few little red glows of embers. Well, that fire's not dead. That, that, that fire is very much alive, even though it's, it's burning very low. It just needs fresh fuel. It needs to be quickened. It needs to be uh, brought to life again. And Habakkuk was passionate to see the presence and the power of God at work among his people. So he prayed for God to visit them, to deal with sin, the sin of indifference, the sin of insincerity, the the coldness and the carelessness. The late Dr. Jones that I've quoted, Martin Lloyd-Jones said, this of revival, It is an experience in the life of the church like the Holy Spirit does an unusual work. Let me repeat that. It is an experience in the life of the church when the Holy Spirit does an unusual work. In other words, the Holy Spirit does that work among the professing Christians in the church. It's the reviving of God's people. It's not a resurrection of dead sinners to life. That's a consequence of revival. They have never had spiritual life. But revival is the awakening of sleepy, slothful saints and stirs them out of their slumber to seek the face of God. True revival does not involve the Holy Spirit doing a new thing in the life of the church. It's not an alternative. It's not something novel. It's not something different to replace the Holy Spirit's usual work. Revival is not something different. Not something different apart from the regular work of the Holy Spirit. The difference lies in degrees, lies in intensity. The outpouring of the Spirit is more widespread. There's an intense awareness of the Lord. There's awe of Him. There's a trembling before Him. There's a brokenness before Him. There's a fear from a sense of sin and guilt. So much so that they want to confess and cry out for mercy. See, that's what revival is. The Holy Spirit doesn't suddenly suspend His usual work and do something different. The Holy Spirit intensifies His unusual work. He he heightens it to such a degree on a greater and a grander scale. That's the history of the church. The Spirit of God is always at work in the life of the church. Revival is the Holy Spirit being poured out in a greater and a deeper and in an unusual manner until he does something that's extraordinary. That's the subject of revival. Think of the source of revival. True revival begins with God. Who's Habakkuk praying to? O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. You see, revival is the true work of God in general. It's not true in the salvation of one soul. Doesn't salvation belong to the Lord? Salvation is of the Lord. The resurrection of one um, spiritually cold dead sinner. Begins with God. Belongs to the Lord. And so too does the restoration of one believer. The stirring of one believer. It belongs to the Lord. Habakkuk said, thy work. He he knows that the reviving work belongs to the Lord. He knows it's the Lord who does the reviving. The Lord who moves in the hearts and minds of men. It's the Lord who saves and stirs the soul. Who pours out his spirit. Who gives the blessing. What do we read over there in John chapter 16? Let me just read it to you. Be patient with me, I pray. In John 16, we read, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. Verse 7, that it is expedient for you that I go away. If I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they believe not in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the Prince of this world is judged. And we read the scriptures, Ezekiel 47, Acts 2 and the day of Pentecost, we discover something. God is the author and source of true revival. It's not man-made. Remember the psalmist prayed, oh, uh, Psalm 85 verse 6, wilt thou not revive us again that we thy people may rejoice in thee? See, Habakkuk knows he needs the Lord. It's not by his power. It's not by his right or or might to give revival. It's it's completely out of his hands. So he cries to the Lord. That's the source of true revival. Let me just give you one other thought, and then we'll we'll pause there for today. I want you to think of the sovereignty of revival. Not only does true revival belong to the Lord, not only is it true in the salvation of one soul or 3,000 souls, but we could ask the question, why does the Lord bless the United States of America in the 1700s? Why did he visit New York in 1858-59? Why did he visit the province of Ulster in 1859? Why did he recently in the last couple of decades visit Nepal? Because God is sovereign. Do you know what happened in Nepal? One man was converted called Paul Thapa. He then witnessed to his family and they were converted. And then they can witness to their village and villages were converted and a church was formed and then they went from one village to another until now there's 140 churches under the free presbyterian church of nepal in that land and of course it's linked to the life of the last decade of the reverend wesley graham why because god is sovereign you see revival can't be brought about by certain conditions it can't be brought about by certain conditions no more so than I can bring about the conversion of one poor lost soul. It's not by human intervention. It's the Lord's work. And yet we can't be passive. We have to preach the word. We have to pray and cry to God. We have to practice holiness and godliness before the Lord. And look to the Lord to visit us. If the Lord worked in Northern Ireland three times in the past, then the Lord can visit Northern Ireland again. We've got to believe in the sovereignty of God for revival. And let me just finish. It won't deal with all the issues. It'll maybe create many more issues than it ever started with. But at its heart, when revival comes, this sovereign, living, and true God is glorified. This sovereign, living, and true God is feared. And this living and true God so visits his people that others then come to see them burn. Others are affected. And it's attributed to the power and presence of God. I finish with this. Habakkuk was being passionate for revival. And I want to ask myself this question. Are you? Am I? passionate for revival may the lord help us to sigh see the subject get our eyes in the source and long for him sovereignly to come and work amongst us the lord bless you and thank you for listening today